You guys are so cool. We, we asked you to sleep in an extra half hour and you did it. Way to go. If you wonder what in the world I'm talking about, you probably knew here. Um, we went to four services this weekend, and so this is the fourth one, but we had to shift this one to 11.30. And, you know, if you're wondering, it's worked perfectly because uh, there's been an even spread of attendance over all four services. And so it's freed up seats as God keeps bringing new people in. We've got room to make space, so this is wonderful. Thanks for working with us and accommodating that. I hope 11.30 works for you okay in the future going ahead. Um, I'd love to pray with you first before we step into uh, chapter 8 and verse 1 of Romans. Um, I especially want to pray with you about what's going on in the southern part of our country right now and, and just lift that up before the Father. Would you join me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we recognize you control all things and there's nothing that escapes your attention. You're very much aware before this storm was even birthed what it would do and the impact that it would have and nothing... Um, goes without you attending to it. And so that means you can draw glory out of it, Father. And you can accomplish your purpose in the midst of it. I pray that your church would rise up. For those that name themselves as Christians, that follow after Jesus, that they would be the hands and feet of Christ in Florida, and they would be the hands and feet of Christ in Texas, and where people are suffering the devastation of loss, um, let alone the loss of life, God, that we're things are just being melted before their eyes, that you would meet their need. And that, that that would come in many parts, Father, through the church, because we are commanded to reach out. So I pray, um, God, that as meals are handed out and as water is received and shelter is given and as clothing is, is there, that you will use these circumstances to draw people closer to you and that it won't drive a wedge and push people away and that the name of Jesus would be glorified. So, Father, I pray that your church would rise up. Uh, I thank you for the work of New Hope and the ways that we were able to meet needs and, and through our compassionate care fund, the way we're able to take care of people. God, use us. Use us to help people who are in need. I thank you now for the attention that we turn to Romans chapter 8 and the way that you can speak to us about who we are to you and who you are to us. God, open our eyes and just illuminate them. Cause us to understand in better and more profound ways this thing that we've been called to. We pray for this in Jesus' matchless name. And God's people said, amen. So 350,000 churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples in the United States of America. And you chose to be here. 350,000 facilities with seats that are open and many people across the nation are filling those places today. And they're all looking for an answer to one question. Every single one of them exists because of a very ancient question. And people are still trying to figure out the answer to the question today. Job asked it. He's the author of the oldest book that we know of in the Bible. Job chapter 9, he said it this way, how can a man be right before God? See, these organizations exist to answer that fundamental question. It's a really, really ancient problem. What do I do? How do I get to God if I'm covered in sin? How can I stand before a holy God? And every single world religion must answer that question. Can a mere human 
stand before a holy God and have a right relationship with him and be acceptable. 340 churches in the Lansing metro area right now operating. And probably 25% of the population of Lansing are in those services. Now, 50% will tell their mother tomorrow that they were in their services, right? Because we want them to think well. Matter of fact, in national polls, about 60% of America says they go to church on a regular basis. But when they actually do a count, it looks like maybe one out of four, about 25% actually do what you're doing right now, trying to answer this question. See, the very reason religion is so common is that man continues to try and attempt to answer Job's question. And every world religion is a response to it. And except for Christianity, every world religion centers on what man can do to make himself acceptable to God. The difference with Christianity, what characterizes it, is the answer actually centers on what God has done for man. And how God makes man acceptable, rather than man making himself acceptable before God. See, according to the Bible, if you haven't read it before, justification, this thing of making yourself right with God, of God saying you're acceptable, justification does not take place because humanity figured out a way to finally conquer sin. We cannot overcome it, but get your amens ready. We can't overcome sin, but God can, and God does. And he does that through Jesus Christ. See, the cross of Jesus means my sin has been dealt with, and it no longer disqualifies me. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, your sin has been dealt with. You are not disqualified because God has dealt with it. So Paul can boldly say, therefore, there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody say amen. amen. That's good stuff. That's an amazing truth. I'm going to tell you, this is one of the greatest verses you can commit to memory. If you can still memorize things, like you can memorize passcodes for your phone, you can memorize a Bible verse. That's a Bible verse you should memorize. Keep that one in the forefront of your mind. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that so important, Mark? Why do you want us to commit that to memory? Because of the power behind it. It is especially important if you hear voices in your head that tell you you're not worthy, that you don't measure up. You know that thing you did yesterday? You think that you're qualified? I know what kind of a person you are. I know how you live. See, the voices that you hear, that's Satan. And Satan, we're told, is the accuser of the brethren, and he will throw things in your face constantly, trying to make you feel as though you don't measure up when God says you do. You can say it out loud. You can say it proudly. I am not condemned because I belong to Jesus. See, that's why Paul's voice keeps echoing through time when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He said that back in Romans chapter 1, by the way. He's not ashamed of this because it's the truth. So in in this term that's in the midst of this sentence that we're going to look at this morning, in Christ Jesus, it is unique to the New Testament, and it is powerful. 
I'm going to come back to it in just a minute to help you understand why Paul uses the phrase that way. But in true New Hope fashion, let's break down this sentence. We're only going to do one verse today, just verse 1. And, and we're not going to treat every verse in Romans chapter 8 by itself and just do one per week, or it would take us 36 weeks to get through it, which wouldn't be all that bad, right? We could do that, but we're not going to do it quite that way. But today, we need to take time with this because it really sets up the rest of the chapter. It frames all of chapter 8. So let's go with the first half. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Now, if you've got your notes, maybe you pulled them out of the bulletin already and you've got your Bible open, get ready to write some things down because these are some things you're going to want to remember about this verse. Therefore, does something. It introduces a result. Paul's saying, based on everything that I've laid a case for in chapters 1 through 7, based on all that's been presented to you, there's something that's being established here. So Paul's saying, here's an outcome. Here's an outcome based on everything that you heard from me. Remember what the primary focus of chapters 1 through 7 was? Even if you weren't here for the study, I'll just give it to you in a sentence. Essentially, Paul made the case that man is not acceptable before God in and of themselves because of the sin nature. So we're not right before God. Man needs justification. And by the time you get to chapter 8, you find a major change in the flow of his writing. This may be the biggest therefore in all of the Bible. Therefore, something monumental has happened. Something has changed, and Paul begins to delineate exactly what those amazing details are. Now, here's another word you might want to circle in your Bible. It's the word now, and especially the way that Paul uses it. Because you could use the word now in many forms. The way he's using the word now, it's in relation to time. And it's in contrast to something that used to be. That's why he structures it the way he does. So just so I don't lose you, stay with me on this. Therefore, there is now. If there's not something there, now there must be, it was there at one time. But he says now it's not there. Now it doesn't exist. i help you with this thought. Ephesians 2, Paul's writing to a bunch of Christians at the church in Ephesus. And listen to what he says to them. You're not going to see it on the screen, but just listen to his words. Paul um, writes this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, that, and the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, hear this, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So there's the something that was before. You're not now, but you were before. You were before children of wrath. You were under God's condemnation, but you're not now. Something has happened. What has happened here? Why has he structured this sentence this way? Because you were under, at one time, condemnation. The first Greek word in your notes, there's only two this morning, you see it on the screen as well, is this word katakrima, and it's the word for condemnation. And it's not just talking about a crime that was committed. It's talking about the sentence that is a result of the crime. So very specifically, the definition says it's an adverse sentence. So there's been a crime committed, and there's a condemnation that comes as a result of the crime. If you go back with me in time to the 
period of 2008, the name Bernie Madoff will immediately resonate with you. Because Bernie Madoff committed what is considered to be the greatest crime of financial fraud in the history of the world, for sure in the history of the United States. He defrauded investors out of $64 billion. And from the $64 billion, he built his own personal empire of wealth and lived a really lavish lifestyle. When he was found out, he was not only convicted of the crimes that he committed against those who trusted him with their money, but he was sentenced. He was given katakrima. He was given condemnation. Uh, he wasn't executed for the crimes that he committed, although some people probably wanted to because he robbed them of all their investments, all their retirement money. But he was given 150 years in prison. Uh, Bernie's 79 years old, so he's never getting out, right? Going to be there a long time. He's going to die in prison. But he was not given the death sentence. He was given life in prison. Paul is saying there's been a crime committed against God, and it's sin. And the sin against God has condemned you. And when you come into Romans 6.23, you find that he already wrote about the penalty, what the condemnation actually looks like. Look with me on the screen at Romans 6.23. For the wages, the penalty, the condemnation, the katakrima, the paycheck for sin is eternal death, eternal separation. But Paul's writing in Romans 8.1 when he says, I've got some amazing news for you. Even though you were katakrima, even though you had death sentence upon you, for Christians, there is now no condemnation, no sentencing, no punishment for the sins that we commit. Is that not amazing? Even for the sins you might commit in the future? And that one messes with people. Every time I say that at New Hope over the course of a particular weekend, invariably somebody comes up to me and says, I've never heard that before. You mean Jesus died for my future sins? Absolutely. He died for your past sins, your present sins, and those you don't even know you're going to commit yet. Because he died for you before you were ever born. He died for all of your sins if you believe that he will take them away from you. Past present, and future. It's the perfect righteousness of Jesus that's put on you. This is amazing news, and that's why Paul writes about this. He says, there's no punishment for you for the sins that you commit, and that's why he says, now no condemnation, and that's the next word you should circle in that sentence is the word no. If you're keeping notes, write this down because you want to understand. It's the second Greek word that's used, the last one that's used this morning. And this particular word, udes, the pronunciation of it is not important. Look at the meaning behind it. Not even one. None. None at all. And here's why this is really important. I don't know if your eyes glazed over when your English teacher got up to teach in school sometimes, like, oh, I don't want to be in this class, but I have to be. Well, you'll be familiar with the term, but it'll kind of make your eyes glaze over when I say this. The word no in the Greek language is a negative emphatic adverb. Want to catch that one again? That's a fun one, right? A negative emphatic adverb of time. So Paul's using the word no and the word now in conjunction together. And I see your eyes glazing over already. Okay, just stay with me. He's using the word no in conjunction with now because there's a specific moment in time when something ceased 
a complete cessation of God's hostility, God's wrath against you. When did that happen? When you believed in Jesus Christ, the condemnation stopped. That's why he can say, there is now no condemnation against you. The two don't go together if you're in Christ Jesus. You remember all the way back to the 1990s with me now. And, and think of a guy by the name of Tom Hanks, who's a modern-day actor, but he was doing movies back in the 90s also. And Tom did a movie in 1992. It's called A League of Their Own. You remember that movie? Okay, it's about women in professional baseball. During World War II, a lot of the guys were shipped overseas and couldn't play baseball, and so they formed leagues of their own. Women got together and played professional baseball. And Tom Hanks plays the role of the manager of the team. And he's overseeing this team of girls uh, he's really chewing out a girl in the middle of between the second and third inning, and he's standing in the dugout, and he goes out, and he meets her on the third base line, and he begins giving it to her because it looks like she's playing for the other team. She's not playing to support their team. They're called the Peaches. And he says, give me, a, give me an answer here. What team do you play for? And she wants to say, well, I want to say I play for the Peaches. And he says, are you crying? There's no crying in baseball. All right? And he starts chewing her out, giving her grief. Now, the rest of the team really gets on him for doing that, but he's He's just ballistic on the issue because crying and baseball don't go together. Well, he's used to coaching men. Paul is saying specifically, there's no condemnation in Jesus. The two don't go together. What are you doing thinking you're under condemnation still? You're no longer under condemnation. That's why he says, this is amazing news. Church, if you haven't heard this before, hear this. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the truth of Jesus Christ. He completely and permanently paid your debt forever, regardless of what you found yourself involved in last night or the things that you've done over this last week. Jesus died for those sins if you're a believer. Does he call you to a higher standard of living? Absolutely. Does he expect you to push on towards the likeness of Christ Jesus? Absolutely. But do you find yourself stumbling in sin? Yes, we still live in the flesh. But he died for those sins. You want me to support this from Scripture? I'm going to do that because some of you were raised in faith in which you were told, man, if, if, I, if I commit sin just before I die and I don't confess that, man, I'm probably going right to hell. That's not the truth of Scripture. Jesus' perfect righteousness was put upon you for all time. That's God's grace. So God assures you of some things I want you to be reminded of. Write these verses down in your Bible. You're going to see them up on the screen. Maybe down in your notes. 1 John 2, 1. If anyone sins, and he's writing to believers here. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself, I love that title, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's a big church word, right? Okay, that means he was made a sacrifice. He, he paid the debt for you. So Jesus not only pays all of our debt, but he also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Look with me on the screen at 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and say this with me, church, and to cleanse us from what? From not just some, not just the little ones, even the worst thing that you can think of that you've ever done in your life, all unrighteousness, even the stuff that you haven't even committed yet. Jesus has taken care of that. 
He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, even more mind-blowing than that is he delivered something to you. He put upon you his own righteousness so that when God sees you, he sees you perfectly. Look with me on the screen one more time. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one offering, he, meaning Jesus Christ, has perfected, catch that, for all time those who are being sanctified for all time, past sins, present sins, future sins. Now, because of this colossal grace, because of this infinite grace, did you know that God actually requires something of you? He actually admonishes you to do something that many of us don't do or not too often. He admonishes us to be thankful. When's the last time you thanked God for your salvation in Jesus Christ and just stopped and said, thank you? It's a great time to do it right now. You can do it in the quietness of your seat. I'll I'll just shut up for a minute. Just thank him. Thank you, God. Thank you for Jesus. Look at the beauty of that. Colossians 1-2 giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. (laughs) Is that not awesome? Thank you, God, for my salvation. You just say it to him every day because of this. We will never, ever, under any circumstance, be subject to blame or conviction or disapproval. On an eternal basis, God says, I forgave you. Like, how blessed are you? You've been completely removed from the reach of condemnation because of Jesus, even when you hear that voice. Even when people around you might say, "Eh, I know how you live. you got Jesus. You've got everything. This is the truth of Romans chapter 8. That's why by the time you get to the end of the chapter, you get to verses 31, Paul really uncorks. Look at what he says. If God is for us, who is against us? Do you hear him saying very, very loudly these truths? Or verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So if you've got the greatest power in the universe, the one who is holy and righteous and true, and he says you're justified, who's going to declare you guilty? Uh, That's part one. Let's go to part two so we can finish out this verse. Who does this belong to? Well, Paul gets really emphatic when he says, it's for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. Nothing more required, nothing else added on. Now, if you happen to own a version of the King James Version of the Bible, there's a scribal error that takes place right after Christ Jesus. A scribe apparently at some point in time decided to take part of verse 4 and transfer it over to verse 1, and he added some things on. And it makes it look like it's works-oriented. So he added on things like, who walk not according to. But the best translations all say, for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. And in Christ Jesus is powerful. And I told you, it's very, very unique to the New Testament for this reason. When you look in the Old Testament, you don't see anybody saying, I am in God. But you come to the New Testament and you find it littered all over the place. Why? 
Because literally, we are in Jesus. This is an amazing expression of your position. At the moment that you believed, hear this, at the moment that you believed, God says, I now see you completely justified. It's as though Jesus Christ is standing right in front of me when you're standing in front of God the Father, and God sees you through the righteousness of Jesus. Therefore, you are seen in Christ. There's a truth that a lot of people don't understand. That's why Paul can say things like Romans 8.34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Remember the phrase katakrima, the sentence brought against you, the, the condemnation, the, the verdict that's actually announced and the sentence that you get? Check this. The one who is able to bring the katakrima against you, the condemnation, the only one capable of bringing a charge is the same one who intercedes for you. So hear this. Think of the woman at the well, who's, or the woman who is caught in adultery. So the night before, she's sleeping with a guy, not her husband, and the religious leaders discover what she's doing. They break into her house, and they grab her and drag her out into the street and throw her down before Jesus. And they intend to stone her. And they say, Jesus, what should we do with her? And Jesus sees the rocks in their hands. And his response is, those of you who are without sin may cast the first stone. Now, you remember the story. Maybe you've not read it before, but they ultimately all leave dropping their rocks because they've all got sin on them. And they cannot condemn Jesus is the only one who can condemn, and he says to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, and sends her on her way. See, the very God who can bring accusation against you doesn't. He chooses not to. So Paul writes, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for you. And this condemnation that you're freed from, it absolutely is without exception. There's no little thing waiting out there to do you in, and it's conferred to every true Christian. So Job's question is answered. How can someone covered with sin stand before a holy God? Well, the answer is you know it. Justification in Jesus gives you the ability to stand before a holy God forever. It's never going to end. So in chapter 7, Paul validated a reality that we all recognize. Every one of us struggle with sin. Paul said, I do it. Paul said, I, I don't do the things I want to do and the things that I know I'm supposed to do. Man, I keep messing up with those. And the, the things I do do, I wish I didn't do. And then he goes on to say, wretched man that I am, who's going to free me from this body of death? Well, you and I are caught up in this body of death, meaning we've got flesh and blood still on us. We haven't been freed from this planet yet. So we continue to find ourselves stumbling in sin and being tripped up by it. But the reality is that even though we are tripped up by it, when you come to Romans chapter 8, you find all of the weight shifting 
Chapter 8, the weight lands on the spectacular reality that every believer, even the weakest one, regardless of what you did yesterday, even the weakest one has complete freedom from eternal condemnation. You're free. Don't you just want to say, I'm free? No, let's do that on three. One, two, three. I am free. That's an amazing reality that you don't have to face eternal condemnation. That Jesus died for time and eternity. Do you want to be better in your walk? Absolutely. Do you pray that you wouldn't trip up? Absolutely. But the eternal issue has been dealt with. So if you're feeling weak in your walk with Jesus right now, if you feel like you're constantly messing up, you have been promised that although you stumble and fall, you will ultimately know eternal victory in Jesus Christ. He's the key to the truth. So a Christian is a person who is in Christ, and God sees you through Jesus as though Jesus is standing right in front of him when you're standing there. You're actually part of Christ. A couple closing thoughts for you, and I want you to write these verses down if, if you're keeping notes so you understand what I'm talking about. To be part of Christ, what does that actually mean? And I'm going to tell you, this is something I don't quite understand. This is a profound mystery. And when you get to see him face to face, there's an amazing thought. You're going to see Jesus face to face one day. When you see him face to face, you will understand. But right now, Scripture says we're looking through a glass dimly. It doesn't make sense to us. It is a profound mystery that we are actually part of Jesus. We know that we're part of him spiritually. We get that. Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Okay, I get that. We know that we're part of him in a participatory sense. Look with me on the screen, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You're the hands and the feet of Jesus. You do things on his behalf. But there's a mystery that goes beyond that. John MacArthur, who's a theologian, lives in California, was looking at this passage, and he had this quote I wanted to share with you about Romans chapter 8. He said it this way, we are actually a part of him, and in ways that are unfathomable to us now, we work when he works, grieve when he grieves, and rejoice when he rejoices. See, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you can actually and accurately say, Jesus flows through me. Jesus flows in me. Jesus is part of who I am, and I don't understand it. It is a mystery. But Galatians 2.20 backs me up on this. Look with me on the screen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But say this with me, church, but Christ lives in me. It's fantastic. That means because of our relationship with Jesus... We're linked to God the Father. And because we're linked to God the Father, we're linked to each other. You are truly my brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I share a common destiny. Uh, you may not like me that much, but you're stuck with me for eternity, okay? You are. And you don't have to necessarily hang out with me in my corner of heaven. It's a big place. You can go to another place. But it, it, the reality is we are one. 
So it doesn't matter the color of your flesh. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your economic status, rich, poor, slave, free, Greek, Jew, Gentile, Persian, Canadian, Scandinavian. It, it doesn't matter. Let me back that up. Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. See, it just doesn't matter. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. This relationship that we have with each other and how God sees us is beautifully illustrated in the Old Testament. It's a mental picture for you. Once a year, the high priest of Israel had the privilege of going before God. And he would step into what was known as the holy place. And then beyond that was the place that was known as the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. The high priest, before he would enter into there, was dressed in beautiful robes. And they would put a crown on his head, uh, like a turban, emblazoned with gold and jewels. And the last thing they would fit him with, with was a breastplate made of pure gold. went over his chest cavity and all the way down to his stomach, a big square piece of gold. And emblazoned on that was set 12 precious jewels, each stone representing one of the tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, they went beyond that. It wasn't just the color or the shape of the stone. They actually carved into the stone the name of the tribe that it represented. So check this. The high priest comes in before God, and he's wearing this beautiful clothing, and he has this golden vest upon him, and he stands in the Holy of Holies before the Ark of the Covenant. And on behalf of all of the people, he's there to make atonement before God. Scripture says that Jesus is the great high priest, the one who intercedes for us, who is there before the Father representing us for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus stands in our stead before God the Father. The night that Jesus is arrested, he carries out what's known as the great high priestly prayer. So picture this. He's standing in the garden where he's about to have chains put on him. And his followers are about to run away, and the guards are coming at him to chain him, and they're going to beat him, and they're going to scourge him, and then they're going to put a crown of thorns on him. They're going to rip the beard from his face, and they're going to pierce his side and nail him to a cross. You know that story. But what you might not know is while Jesus is standing in the garden, he starts praying for you. 2,000 years ago, he's praying for those who belong to him. God, you, Father, and I are one. I pray that they would be one. Why? Watch with me on the screen. It says this specifically in John 17, 21. Father, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Here's the why. So that the world may believe that you sent me. God's word makes it very, very clear 
that you and I, brothers and sisters, have been adopted into the family. And we are made literally, and I know that word is overused today, we are literally made the descendants of Jesus Christ. We have been adopted into the household of God, and hear this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit deeply loves you. Do you need to hear that again? God loves you. How about a third time? God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. I haven't sent my son to die for anybody. God sent his son to die for me, and he said, you get to be adopted in, meaning God chose us. All these things you've heard this morning, they're all true because of what Paul lays out in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody better say amen to that. They see, as Paul picks up that very ancient quill, and he's got some ancient ink, and he begins writing on a piece of papyrus. He's not just writing down history. And yeah, he's writing theology, and it's rich theology, but it's not just theology. I'm convinced Paul is caught up in a profound experience of worship to God. Because nowhere in the annals of human literature can you find anything equal to the power and the beauty of this remarkable adoration and praise. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. You are facing eternal death. You're not any longer. Who can bring in a charge against you? God is the one who justifies. You hear the praise coming out of that? See, you and I have barely stepped into chapter 8. We just scratched the surface. Just one little verse. The pinnacle awaits your arrival at verses 28 through 39 when he just builds into an amazing crescendo. But this verse sets the standard against which all of it is unfolded. And although we haven't discovered all that chapter 8 has, we have hit on the most important point. The verdict has been removed from you. You're no longer katakrima, no longer condemned. Praise Jesus, amen? Praise God. Because it's true for those who put their trust in Jesus. Anytime a group of this size gets together, there's always a chance that there's somebody that's never dealt with this issue. And I'm just going to challenge you that maybe this is your moment. Maybe you've never acknowledged Jesus as your Savior. And you need to ask for forgiveness of your sins and that Jesus would come in and be Lord of your life. You can do that right now where you're sitting, the quietness of where you're at. You could say it as simply as you want to. God, I know who Jesus is. I want a new beginning. I want to be released from these sins, and I want to be bound for heaven. Just tell them that. If you don't know what to say or you want to talk with somebody afterwards, come find me. Or there'll be an individual who's willing to pray with you. They'll be standing right up here with a, a lanyard on. And they'll take you to a quiet place and talk with you. And if you can't do any of that, on the back brown table, there's envelopes. They say next steps on them. Grab one of those envelopes on your way out. It'll show you what to do next. How do I respond to this? What do I do with this information? Right now, what I'd love to do is, is pray for you. 
I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want to pray for those who are struggling through this. Let's pray together. Father, you have revealed truth this morning, and you have spoken powerfully. We've got an entire day ahead of us, and what we do with it is up to us. But God, I ask in the midst of it, you would remind us of who we are. For those who have professed Jesus Christ, God, that we are free, and we don't know condemnation whatsoever, regardless of what people might say to us. Thank you for what Paul wrote down in chapter 8. God, I also recognize there's individuals here who might be struggling right now. Perhaps they don't know what to do with this information. I pray that you would be especially close right now, Father, and draw them into relationship with you. You've made your word clear, and your Holy Spirit has taken a veil off our eyes. And if if there's someone, Father, who hasn't yet confessed Jesus, show them this is the moment. We're talking about eternal destiny here. So, God, I ask that you would be faithful to do that. You're always faithful. I pray for your hand upon our activity, that we would take what we have heard and encourage us, God, but turn that encouragement into courage, that we would speak boldly for your name. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Uh, Before I let you go, I want to just pronounce a blessing over you, but before I do that, I, I want to really celebrate with you what God's doing in our church. Did you know this is the 10th anniversary of New Hope? We've been around since 2007, so 2017, we're 10 years old, right? In 10 years, I haven't changed a bit. Can you imagine? Is that, is that not amazing? But look at what God has done in, in the way that he's growing this church and drawing people into faith and people understanding the word of God. So on the weekend of October 1st, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask all four services to come together for one service And obviously that can't happen here, right? That's why we went to four services. So we're going to ask all four services to come together for one event, a one-time only thing, and it will be out at the new property. And so it's on East Saginaw. You'll get more details about that as the couple of weeks ahead of us come. So what we want to do is really celebrate well what God has done over 10 years here. It's just extraordinary. God loves to celebrate. I don't know if you know about that, but God is a celebratory God. He does. He rejoices. So God loves it when his people celebrate, but also we need to all get together again, all the hundreds of us, to be reminded why we bought that property and why we're building that building because God's got many more people in this Lansing area. Even though there's 340 churches, there's 350,000 people living in the greater metro area, and how many of them don't know Jesus yet? How many don't know Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So I'm sharing this with you now so you get a couple weeks heads up so you can pray about that as we gather together that we keep God's vision before us, right? That's a, that's a reason to gather together. So how about if you stand and I want to pronounce a biblical blessing over you. It comes from the book of Leviticus. It goes like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you until we meet again. Have a great week, New Hope.